0: Welcome to US elections untangled, a podcast series brought to you by the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Donald Trump's brand of American first has too often led to America alone. Hi everyone, and welcome to US Elections Untangled. I'm Maria Anala from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, and I'm going to be your host throughout this podcast series. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the US's relationship with the Indo-Pacific countries. Our guest today is project director Bart Gans from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Bart, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. The US has paid a lot of attention to Asia, both during the Obama presidency and now during the Trump presidency. But I'm under the impression that Asia policy didn't exactly work out as planned for either one of these presidents. So what was Obama's pivot to Asia? And what happened when he tried to pursue it? Well, I think
1: that uh, now for several decades already, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the rise of Asia and uh, the Asian century that would be uh, coming. That would be, uh, first of all, in in terms of uh, economy, that Asia would be the fastest growing uh, region on Earth and that the 21st century uh, would become the Asian century after the 20th century that was perhaps American and the 19th century it was perhaps uh, more uh, European. So the US was certainly aware of that uh, economic shift of. Gravity towards uh, Asia. And then, of course, there's also the, the security dimension of things. Uh, in a way, you can say there's an Asian paradox because Asia is very uh, vibrant in terms of uh, economic growth. Um, economies are rapidly growing. There's a lot of uh, trade integration as well. But at the same time, and on the other hand, uh, in terms of uh, security, um, Asia is quite, uh, let's say, a hotspot. The situation is, is quite tense. There's uh, a lot of um, territorial disputes. There is uh, historical grievances there's maybe even an ongoing arms race and so on so um, and at the same time there's actually not so much uh, security cooperation there's not so much uh, so many um, overarching uh, multilateral uh, security institutions so I think with that double idea in mind uh, the U.S tried to launch this uh, pivot towards Asia under the uh, Obama administration uh, starting in 2012, or what he called uh, rebalancing towards Asia. And I think the idea was very much to strengthen the US military presence, but also diplomatic presence in Asia, and to strengthen this uh, so-called hub and spokes uh, system by allocating or reallocating more uh, resources and more focus and attention to Asia. And I think one good uh, example of that was, the idea to launch, launch the, the TPP, this uh, mega trade deal between 12 countries in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, perhaps also one other idea behind the pivot was um, that the US wanted to um, advance its relations with, relationships with countries in the region, also in a way to, to engage uh, China more. Now, you can discuss about the uh, the fact whether or not the, the, the pivot was a failure, I think, When you look at the situation on the ground, uh, in fact, not much happened except perhaps the uh, relocation of uh, some troops to uh, Australia. But I think um, more important than that, it was that, um, well, the global situation changed in the meantime. There was the Ukraine crisis, uh, the Russian annexation of Crimea, there was a situation in the Middle East, um, uh, Syria, and so on, and all that drew attention away from from Asia, so in that sense, the pivot was uh, indeed not a success, but perhaps at the level of uh, rhetoric, um, it can be seen as more uh, successful in that it gave uh, more reassurance to countries like uh, like Japan that the U.S. would uh, keep on aiming to uh, well uh, remain the the key security provider uh, in the region and also to continue to show regional uh, leadership. So I would say, uh, certainly on the ground, maybe not so much has happened, but in terms of uh, rhetoric, it was more important. And certainly if you think about longer-term implications, I think it's unavoidable that uh, the US is or will be pivoting more towards uh, Asia.
0: Some of the people who are critical of the pivot say that it antagonized China. What do you think about that?
1: Um it certainly did antagonize uh, China to a, certain, um, to a certain extent, but I think China also became aware of the fact that actually, in fact, not much was happening uh, on the ground and that the U.S. indeed remained um, dis- distracted in regions like uh, the Middle East and so on. So to a certain extent, it uh, did form some kind of reassurance for, for China that not much was happening on the ground.
0: And when we talk about U.S.-Asian relations, um, we often talk about the Indo-Pacific region, So what is that exactly and why is that so often the focus?
1: Um, Well, uh, the Indo-Pacific is actually uh, quite a a new term. It's um, a strategic term um, that is used to denote uh, perhaps a wider uh, Asian region stretching all the way from uh, South Asia, including India, uh, to uh, all the way to, to Southeast Asia as well as uh, Oceania, and the goal is very much to give uh, uh, India uh, a more prominent role in in that region and perhaps at the same time um, well give China perhaps a relatively lesser uh, role. Um, The concept itself is not uh, very new. It was uh, launched already in 2007, uh, actually by Japanese Prime Minister um, Abe, and it was uh, adopted by the Trump administration more recently in uh, 2017. So um, Prime Minister Abe's initial idea was to... uh, join these uh, two oceans the pacific ocean and the indian ocean and he also connected it with uh, what he called fundamental values like uh, freedom uh, democracy uh, human rights and also more strategic interests uh, for japan in particular like the freedom of uh, of sea lanes and so on so um, ever since the us adopted the concept in 2017 it has been also adopted by other countries including um, india as well as australia and now there's a lot of talk about this uh, free and open uh, Indo-Pacific, which is uh, supposedly standing for some kind of a commitment to a region that is, uh, well, open, uh, free, uh, inclusive, and, and rules-based. And of course, this is um, not explicitly, but implicitly a reference uh, uh, to China, so and also to the US-China rivalry that uh, underscores the, the whole situation. It also refers to um, the fact that now also other emerging powers like India and, and even smaller countries are... Um, Kind of repositioning uh, themselves within this uh, this competition, and maybe uh, try to to hedge against uh, uh, future uncertainty that this uh, U.S.-China rivalry uh, brings with it.
0: So, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific, China is not part of it, or China is part of it. What is the reference to China exactly?
1: Um, like I said, the reference is uh, implicit and. Um, China uh, does not use this this term. Uh, it is a term used by uh, so-called like-minded democracies in the first place, India, Australia, uh, Japan, and the US. China uh, would rather use terms like um, community of a shared uh, destiny and so on, uh, and perhaps also uh, more aimed to reestablish this uh, Sinocentric region that perhaps it would call rather uh, Asia.
0: Makes sense. And let's talk a little bit about President Trump. During the 2016 campaign, he repeatedly attacked China and lamented that China was taking advantage of the U.S. So what has that meant for the American-Asian relationships and the U.S.-Indo-Pacific relationships now that uh, Trump has been president?
1: Well, I think you can... um think about it in terms of uh, both uh, change as well as uh, continuity. Of course, on the surface of it, there has been quite a a big change from Obama to uh, Trump, from uh, Obama's uh, at least rhetorical Asia-first policy to Trump's uh, America-first policy. And of course, uh, Trump... uh, perhaps explicitly tried to dismantle the Obama uh, legacy. And maybe the best example of that is the fact that the US actually withdrew from this uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, this uh, mega uh, regional uh, free trade uh, deal, uh, which according to Obama, at least, or in the uh, initial ideas, of Obama was supposed to uh, actually strengthen America's overall um, strategic position in, in the region. And um, well, Trump uh, doing away with this, this, this was actually then seen as uh, the U.S. maybe giving up on uh, a certain type of, of global leadership, key issues like climate, but also trade. Uh, so instead, Trump has been focusing much more on uh, bilateral uh, trade deals, and he has been taking a very business-like and transactional approach also to... Um, alliances to defense alliances in place uh, in in the region accusing allies for example of uh, taking advantage uh, of the united states so in that sense there has been kind of a, a big shift and there has been change for, for sure but then at the same time i think uh, there has been continuity because some core elements of the the the, the current strategy for the Indo-Pacific that the U.S. uh, has, uh, they they stay stay in place. And I think, for example, the um, system of uh, alliances and uh, partnerships has actually been uh, strengthening and not weakening uh, during the Trump administration. It has perhaps taken on a bit of a different shape, cooperation, Uh, as well as consultations, dialogue, now take place much more at the level of um, uh, bilateral relations or even trilateral relations. Um, Allies are now also much more working between themselves. So I think that from a more rigid hub and spokes system, there has been, um, especially during the Trump administration, more of a shift towards uh, even stronger security network, kind of a networked uh, approach to this uh, system of of, uh, alliances and uh, partnerships.
0: So, who are the American's main allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region?
1: Well, uh, first of all, you have the the traditional allies in the hub and spokes uh, system that has been in place uh, for over 70 uh, years uh, now already. So there are the military alliances with countries like uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, Australia and the Philippines for example. But I think in, a, in addition to that, you have now, uh, so in addition to these formal alliances, you have a, kind of a network of, uh, of informal partnerships, and I think the relationship with uh, India is a good example here in, um, uh, in this context. Here maybe also another good example might be the, the Quad, uh, the Quadrilateral um, Security Dialogue, which is a, a format of cooperation uh, between the US, uh, India, Australia, and Japan. Um, it's also something that is uh, all, not all that new. It started already in uh, 2007, but then because of uh, Australia's uh, withdrawal, there was kind of a 10-year break before it was relaunched, uh, more recently in uh, late 2017. Um, and in fact, uh, just yesterday there was a, uh, a gathering uh, at the foreign minister's uh, level of, of this uh, quad. It's quite informal, um, quite low-key, uh, under the radar in the first place, not to offend uh, uh, China, uh, one might think. But uh, in the meeting for uh, uh, yesterday, for example, um, U.S. Secretary of State uh, Pompeo was actually quite, uh, quite vocal and very critical about uh, China's um, uh, actions, and, and in particular in the South China Sea. So uh, China, of course, has not... Um, Liked this uh, uh, gathering of the Quad uh, very much. It has been criticizing it as an anti-China alliance, uh, aiming to contain China in its region. And it has even uh, said that this might be a, a, well, a burgeoning attempt to create an, a NATO uh, kind of uh, alliance in, in Asia. Is it? um I would say not yet, but it might. Well, I think it will never become uh, like a formal alliance like NATO. But uh, there are indications that uh, the countries involved, um, uh, including India, including uh, Australia and Japan, are taking this uh, more seriously and um, that it might come from a quite loose and informal um, consultation platform to something more concrete. Three countries in the Quad have had already military exercises uh, called the the uh, Malabar naval exercise for quite some years now. Uh, so uh, Japan, US and, and Australia. And there is now talk um, in particular because of tensions between India and China that India, the main organizer of this military exercise might actually also allow uh, this year Australia uh, or might invite Australia to join this naval exercise. So those are perhaps small hints that in the future, maybe this might uh, develop towards something more formal and more serious.
0: If we look at the U.S.-Japan relationship, for example, during the Trump presidency, has that changed a lot? I know Trump has been critical of all of the U.S.'s traditional allies, including Japan, but what has it meant in practice? Well,
1: uh... In practice, there was a bit of a, of a, a panic perhaps in, in Japan. Japan has always been um, grappling with this um, fear of abandonment as well as fear of entrapment when it uh, comes to its uh, relationships with uh, the with US. So fear of abandonment that Japan would need to um, stand for its own uh, security and, and defense, that it would need to become independent. Um, there was a bit of a, let's say, um, identity crisis uh initially when Trump came into office. Also the fact that uh, Trump was of course Going about things in his uh, personal style. He um, started, for example, uh, negotiations with uh, North Korean leader uh, Kim Jong un without consulting Japan. And there was a lot of, uh, well, worry in Japan that uh, Trump was not directly or in the first place at all thinking about Japan's interests and, and, and security. So there was a lot of unease and perhaps uh, uh, some uh, worries and perhaps even an identity crisis. But I think that kind of subsided. And US elections in the past few years, some perhaps conservative forces in Japan might actually be happy with Trump. They might actually be quite uh, satisfied that Trump is now taking a much tougher uh, approach uh, towards China, because of course, uh, Japan still has quite a tense relationship uh, with, with China.
0: How about the US-Indian relationship? Has there been interesting developments in the past four years? Um, Well, as for
1: the US's relationship with India, India has always had the tradition um, to remain, uh, let's say, non-aligned, even though it still has a very strong relationship with with Russia, for example, in terms of uh, defense equipment uh, purchases and so on. But in the past few years, uh, India has certainly inched closer to uh, the US. And of course, the two uh, share quite a lot of uh, common uh, mutual interests. Uh, in also ensuring that there is kind of a balance of power. And this is everything to do with China's uh, approaching India in the region in the first place through um, infrastructure uh, projects in um, the framework of the BRI, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, uh, including the fact that China has been purchasing or accessing ports uh, in in the Indian Ocean region in India's uh, neighborhood where it now has uh, has access to, to to these ports it has been expounding uh, its uh, economic as well as uh, political influence in uh, India's immediate neighborhood and of course there is uh, um, most of recently uh, what has flared up again uh, the territorial uh, dispute uh, between China and and India so for all these reasons india has been uh, inching closer to the us in terms of um, uh, defense cooperation where that will develop from now on that remains uh, to be seen um, most likely this uh, closer relationship with the us will uh, will will be be here to stay in my view
0: and has trump been welcoming India's inching closer to the U.S.? Has Trump done anything to create closer ties with India? Or is it most just mostly just for external reasons that don't really have much to do with the U.S. per se or the, the president?
1: I think uh, Donald Trump has been trying to um, establish a very uh, close bond with uh, India's Prime Minister uh, Modi, for example. Uh, there have been mu- mutual uh, visits Um attended by, by uh, many, many thousands of, of, of people. So um, in his own style, he has been trying to create this, this uh, personal bonds of, uh, of, of, of loyalty or of, uh, of friendship, let's say. But at the more structural level, I think there has been uh, quite a lot of uh, changes as well that India is now much closer, uh, let's say, aligned with, with the US, exactly for the reasons that I mentioned, uh, the tense relations with, uh, with China.
0: And what do you think a second Trump term might mean for the relationship the U.S. has with the Indo-Pacific countries?
1: Well, I think that um, U.S.-China uh, rivalry will uh, will continue. That That is here to stay. You, you might even um, say that that has become the new normal. Um, so I think what we will continue to be seeing is that countries are are hedging and, and, and balancing um, the U.S. and China against uh, each other. You can think, for example, of, uh, uh, well, India is one example, I already mentioned that. Uh, the Philippines might be another example. Um, the Philippines uh, President Duterte uh, might be, let's say, ideologically closer uh, to China in spite of uh, a formal uh, alliance with the US. But he has been declaring this pivot uh, to China in, in recent years. But then more recently, he has been again then leaning more back towards the US, so um, countries will continue to play out both countries against each other and to try to find a balance uh, in between them. Um, Myanmar could be uh, seen as another example. There's uh, a lot of uh, Chinese investments uh, in Myanmar, but at the same time, uh, the country has been trying to also uh, bring in other actors, including Japan, the US, and also uh, the EU to uh, invest in the country uh, as for uh, infrastructure projects. Vietnam is also um, maybe another example equally uh, communist um, regime, and therefore maybe leaning towards uh, China, but still with a very strong uh, strategic links uh, with the US. So I think these are all examples of this uh hedging and, and, and balancing that these countries will continue to be doing in the future. And then a second thing maybe is that uh, um, this hub and spoke system, like I said, will also become more informal and perhaps more based on certain specific uh, issues relating to defense and, and security, and that there will be more uh, looser strategic partnerships that are being uh, formed in the region. So it, it will become perhaps more of a, a fuzzy and more um um, networked structure compared to uh, before
0: so it's not so clear anymore what the alliances are it's more issue based than when some specific thing arises, certain countries work together on that and then when something else is discussed, it might be a different set of countries who are working together on that one, if their interests align or...
1: I think, well, the, the alliances will remain in place and remain formal and institutionalized. But I think in addition to that, allies will be cooperating more with each other. So there will be more cooperation between uh, the spokes, spoke-to-spoke cooperation in this uh, hub-and-spokes system. And then also, in addition to that still, there will be more... Um, based uh, on certain issues, cooperation between, uh, let's say, a formal U.S. ally and a U.S. partner, uh, such as uh, Japan and uh, India cooperation, which would mean that uh, the two countries would not be cooperating on everything. They would not be becoming uh, formal allies. They will even not be uh, agreeing on, on everything, such as uh, stance toward China. But they would be collaborating on certain, uh, let's say, connectivity projects, for example, infrastructure pro- projects. Uh, Japan and India now have the uh, Asia-Africa growth corridor idea, at least on paper, uh, which would aim to um, kind of form kind of a counterbalance to the Chinese activities in, in, in Africa, for example.
0: And Trump can be very antagonizing. I wonder, since the countries are going to be trying to sort of pit the U.S. and China against each other in a way or hedge their bets, do you think Trump is going to be okay with them trying to find this balance? Or is there a risk that he's going to somehow try and make the Asian partners and allies choose one over the other and sort of very clearly align with one and sever ties with the other, as I feel that he's kind of trying to do in Europe. Uh,
1: certainly there is that um, risk, but perhaps I think you should also make a big difference between um, the Trump uh, rhetoric and then what is actually happening on the ground. So like I said, I think that the uh, this system of uh, alliances and, and partnerships is actually strengthening and not weakening in spite of what Trump has been uh, saying and, and perhaps even trying to do. He has been trying to um, make countries like Japan pay more uh, more money for, for the upkeep of, of um, uh, American troops on, on the Japanese soil. I think so far Japan has been paying something like uh, 70% of the costs for the... Um, maintenance of us troops on on japanese soil uh, trump uh, was arguing that that should actually be 100% plus an additional 50% in uh, host nation uh, support but in spite of that if you then look at what is happening at the at lower levels at uh, operational levels military-to-military cooperation, purchase of uh, military equipment, for example. Japan uh, purchases 90% of its uh, defense equipment from the US, for example. So if you look at what is happening on the ground, I think uh, there's a tendency that um, uh, the relationships are getting stronger and and not weaker in spite of uh, Donald Trump.
0: Well, how about if uh, Joe Biden wins the election and becomes the next president? what would be the key similarities and differences between a second Trump term or a Biden presidency?
1: Um, Well, one difference, I think. Well, if there would be a Biden um, administration, he is uh, believed to be quite a strong um, proponent of this network of of allies and partners. And he sees it as one of the greatest uh, accomplishments in ensuring peace in Asia and stability. So I think uh, if there would be a Biden administration, he will certainly try to further strengthen that uh, alliance network and also um, perhaps um, focus more on... on, uh, values, common values like uh, democracy and, and a rules-based uh, approach. There might also be a shift back to the uh, more of a multilateral approach instead of the Trumpian uh, bilateral approach. So there might even be a chance that um, the US might rejoin the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that is now um, being continued on a different format between the, the 11 countries that are left, um, not in the least under the Japanese leadership. So I think that the US might actually rejoin TPP. I think at the same time it's uh, important to keep in mind that certain things likely will will not change. Um, I think we have moved on from this uh, era where the U.S. tried to um, engage uh, China, cooperate with China, see, see China as a partner. I think now there is a, even a bipartisan um, consensus that there needs to be a tougher approach towards China, especially uh, in the light of what is happening in the South China Sea and, and China's. Uh, well, what uh, the US sees as uh, China's, uh, well, exaggerated maritime claims. So uh, I think there's going to be a change as well as uh, continuity in that sense.
0: All right. Well, to finish this off, could you describe one nightmare scenario and one optimistic scenario about what the 2020 election results might mean for the relationships the US has with the Indo-Pacific countries?
1: Well, as for a a nightmare scenario, um, I think it's unlikely that it will happen, but that would be that uh, Trump's uh, so-called personal approach and uh, attempts to, um, well, uh, approach allies more in a transactional uh, way, that that would actually lead countries uh, into going it alone and to uh, become convinced that they would need to take care of their own defense and, and security, which would then uh, certainly lead to an escalation of tensions in the re- region. Uh, Japan, for example, would in that case be or see itself forced as uh, so as to uh, revise its constitution, uh, its pacifist constitution, so that it would also allow uh, offensive uh, capabilities, which would lead to an arms race. Um, it would uh, lead to uh, rivalry and competition for uh, leadership in the region. And there is no way that China, for example, would allow Japan uh, to do that. Uh, also, in terms of um, the situation on the Korean peninsula, that would only lead to an escalation of uh, uh, of things. That would be a nightmare scenario, but I think that uh, the system in place is uh, well likely uh, to be much more uh, resilient than that. Um, an optimistic scenario would be that uh, indeed this uh, networked alliance uh, structure would become stronger, that there would be more cooperation based on values, based on rules and international law, and that there would be a peaceful uh, coexistence as well as cooperation uh, with uh, China. But also here, I think we should not be overly uh, optimistic. We should be realistic and uh, be aware that this uh, US rivalry will will stay. And also that um, the countries in the region, small as well as uh, larger, uh, will continue to keep on uh, hedging their bets and, and try to find uh, uh, or try to balance uh, the two countries against uh, each other.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for our next episode. We'll be talking about the relationship between the US and Germany. Our guest will be leading researcher Niklas Hellwig from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs.